Nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. Between claims of medical malpractice, audits, and insurance denials, they're facing pressures across their entire practice. Robin is here to help. Robin has reimagined the medical note to protect your practice in new ways and save you time. With Robin, you only document the clinical issues you care about, and we deliver comprehensive administrative documentation that includes justified medical coding, medical liability defense, audit protection, and more. Visit robin.co slash J-O-S-P-T to learn more. That's R-O-B-I-N dot co slash J-O-S-P-T. Hello and welcome to J-O-S-P-T Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome to another episode of JOSPT Insights. Today we are sitting down with Dr. Kevin Wernley to learn more about the relationship between chronic low back pain, movement, and posture, as well as how patients perceive this relationship and how our interventions, in particular our education, can make a major impact on both the quantitative and qualitative factors contributing to their low back pain and their quality of life. Kevin is a physiotherapist and researcher from Perth, Western Australia. He completed his PhD with a world-renowned team from Curtin University, researching low back pain and how it relates to movement and posture. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. First of all, Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time and managing the time difference to join us today on JOSPT Insights. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Happy to be here. Our big question is, because you are an expert in, how we can better communicate with patients who have low back pain and chronic low back pain. And you just had a paper come out. Okay. So the emphasis of this paper was interesting because it looks at, it's not like looking at the efficacy of a certain treatment protocol for low back pain. Who does this paper apply to? I think it's a quite a useful, I'm biased obviously being in the author, but a useful mixed methods paper to really understand this question around how movement and posture relate to low back pain and how do, how do people that experience low back pain conceptualise that relationship? What's there? How do they make sense of that? But in terms of the type of people that this was, we recruited 12 people in it and our goal was to recruit 12 quite diverse people with disabling low back pain. These were very disabled people. So, you know, most trials or most studies online might have the uh, Roland Morris disability questionnaire of around about five, six out of 23 or 24. And the mean or the median RMDQ for us was 17.5. So these were quite highly disabled people. Some of them were off work. Some of them had pain for a long period of time. Some were on workers' compensation. Some had lots of spinal injections and, and treatment and fusions and things like that. So these were the people that still weren't getting better, people that we often see in clinic. Can you talk about the four categories that you put them in? So based on how they moved and reacted to, to their, their low back pain? Uh, we put them into, I suppose, you can call them qualitative categories. Once we started analyzing the qualitative data, we sort of identified that there was these groups or, or themes that people fit into. So two of them were kind of in the pre-phase. So, so just to clarify, we had interviews at the start and interviews at the end of treatment. So we wanted to really capture this sort of baseline or before period when people, you know, the people that we see in the clinic, but also we wanted to understand how that conceptualization changed once they either recovered 
recovered or some of them didn't recover. So during the baseline period, we sort of heard these stories around these feelings of stiffness and tightness and rigidity and being tense and locked up. And we sort of also heard people talk about I've consciously try to protect. I'm careful with my movement. I have to, you know, brace my core, keep my back straight. All those traditional rules that we're often taught and society is, tells us. And we kind of broke them up into sort of this conscious group of people that or group where people were very protective. They were thinking about being protective, but also n this non-conscious protective group where we sort of saw that that was their embodiment of their protection was through their body holding tension in their back. So that, that broke down that baseline group after the 12-week intervention. People moved towards what we've initially talked about, like they had these really powerful experiences throughout the interventions around, okay, if I relax my back, if I learn to be more normal with my movements and postures, and that wasn't an easy task for some people, quite a frightening task for people. So it takes a lot of, I suppose, guidance from the clinicians. But initially that conscious less protection or conscious non-protection resulted in less pain for many of these people. So by relaxing, by breathing, by moving normally, I'm able to reduce my pain. But I have to kind of consciously think about it. I have to specifically think, okay, if I get sore, I've got to you know, do what the physio has told me and try to move normally because when I do that, it feels less painful and, I, and it gives me control over my symptoms. So lots of people talked about that. And then some people kind of, I sort of think of it like they graduated towards the final group, which was the non-conscious, non-protective group. So they kind of, they, they started having to be conscious with their movement patterns and think about relaxing and moving normally. And that took cognitive effort, but eventually that became automatic. The more they realized that, okay, moving this way and posturing myself in this way actually feels better. And which kind of flies in the face of what I've been told around things like damage or what I believed was things around damage and a broken spine. The more that I do that, the better it feels. Then therefore these patterns become automatic, non-conscious, habitual and, and back to normal. And we also found that there was some differentiating factors in terms of the quantitative changes between the conscious and non-conscious, non-protective groups. So those that graduated towards that more automatic, habitual, non-conscious, non-protective patterning or movements and postures, they showed larger changes in pain catastrophizing and pain self-efficacy than those that remained in the conscious non-protection group. So I guess that's some quantitative support for the qualitative grouping that we did. Thinking about, you know, if a patient comes into you and you're evaluating them, thinking about, okay, are they consciously protecting? Are they non-consciously? Are they, right? Or are they, I just think it's a really, it's like a newer way, at least for, for me to think about that. And I think it could be helpful for people to kind of like put them in one of those categories and then you can kind of tailor your treatment based on that. It's quite helpful. I mean, we, people don't fit nicely into categories, but obviously, you know, it's, it's nice to, and I've used this diagram a lot with patients, particularly after they sort of come to a bit of a realization, have a few experiences of, of less pain with less protective movements and patterns. Then you can kind of highlight that, hey, this might not be a quick journey. And at the moment, you consciously have to think about you know, moving in this new way, which you've found we've we've together found is less painful. But eventually, I want this to become automatic for you. And and there's a really nice a model called the forgotten joint scale, which is this idea that after a joint replacement, 
the goal, the gold standard outcome is for them to forget they even have a knee or, or a replaced joint. So for me, it's kind of like taking people through this journey around, you know, first we're going to have to consciously think about this and, and you'll, you'll find that you pick yourself up doing those old protective patterns, which is normal and, and quite reasonable based on the current societal messages. But when you do pick that up, I want you to celebrate that you've picked it up. I want you to respond differently. That might be with that, that new movement pattern that we've found is more comfortable for you. And then eventually keep working on that and eventually that become automatic and, and non-conscious. And my ultimate goal for you is to forget that you even have a back. If I was to sprain my wrist or to sprain my ankle, you know, I don't want to continuously be thinking, oh my God, I've got to be careful around that ankle. I've got to be careful with my, with my wrist. And if we can get to the stage where it's like, I mean, I've, I've broken plenty of bones and I sometimes I forget which ankle, in fact, I do forget which ankle I've broken. And I think that's a really good place to be because it tells you that you've kind of completed that rehabilitation journey. So that's, and I'm quite explicit with that with my patients. So. It's useful for patients to see this diagram to say, hey, that's me, I'm protective or I'm doing these things. And it's not just me doing this. This was 12 people and the literature is really well supported in this as well. So it kind of gives them this sense of I'm, I'm not alone in this journey and that this is really common. Sometimes people feel really almost quite stupid and that they've been doing these movement patterns because it's like, well, why was I doing that for so long? I mean, I, I feel so much better when I don't do that. It was actually quite simple and, and straightforward and it makes sense that this is the cycle that's going on. Helping people understand that that's really normal and common, I think is, is really validating for them. Oh, absolutely. At any age too. So, I mean, the, the emphasis of this paper is not necessarily the treatment, but you do kind of, you do mention that you put them through a cognitive functional therapy. What is cognitive functional therapy, broadly speaking? Yeah. So there's a great paper in the PTJ about this that Peter O'Sullivan authored. And I would highly, highly recommend that people go and read that because that'll tell you all about what cognitive functional therapy is. But broadly speaking, it's an integrated, I suppose, psychologically informed treatment approach that targets the unhelpful cognitions, behaviors, lifestyle factors, particularly the modifiable ones, obviously, to try and help people get back to living. So it's broken up into, I suppose, again, it's not as simple as being broken up into three sections, but broadly speaking, it's around this idea of giving people control around their pain, helping make sense of why they hurt so that they've got an understanding of why that is, and then also improving relevant lifestyle factors that we know contribute to pain. I was reading through the initial interviews and honestly, they were difficult to digest because the, 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 there were so many negative narratives that these, these patients yeah. had. And you mentioned this in the paper, a lot of them, if not all of them, had these negative narratives that were initiated by some contact with a healthcare provider in their history. And so a provider who told these individuals that they had damage to their spine or that they needed to move in a protective manner to avoid pain. And many of these individuals noted in their initial interview before treatment had even started that when they relaxed their posture, that their pain was less, but they still followed the healthcare provider's advice to move in a protective manner, even though it increased their pain. And you know, they thought that what they were doing was what they were supposed to be doing to prevent further damage. And so are there uh, one or two or three even uh, you know, kind of key things that healthcare providers can do to better communicate with, with patients regarding their low back pain? Yeah, I think you highlight a really important point, and we kind of allude to that in the paper in that the potential iatrogenic or sort of healthcare-induced consequences of, 
of the messages that these people believe. Now, all the healthcare professionals, they're well-intentioned, they're well-meaning, they're trying to do their best, but inadvertently the message along the way has that's what the, the the patient has understood. It might not have been what the healthcare professional said, but that's what they've taken away. It's highlighted nicely by one of my favorite quotes from the paper is where someone talked about sitting upright makes my pain worse, but I just thought I meant to keep my posture upright. So this idea that belief transcends personal experience. So I feel better when I relax and slouch, but that's bad for me. So therefore I sit up straight, even though that's worse, because maybe long-term that's better for me. So this fear of kind of more normal postures and patterns and trusting themselves. But in terms of a couple of key things that health professionals need to consider, I mean, again, everyone's trying to do their best and it's not an easy space and we're just working with the tools that we've got. But I think being really mindful around our language is, is really important. It's really difficult for clinicians with confidence to say that this is you're definitely 100% of your pain is coming from a disc herniation or something like that. We might have a strong inkling based on their presentation, based on some imaging findings. We're not quite 100%, 100% sure that that's all only what's causing it. You know, the, the pain might be influenced by, we, we could have two people that have two similar looking disc herniations on a scan, but one might be completely asymptomatic or have very minimal pain and one might have high pain and that might be due to a number of other factors their immune system might be down they might be highly stressed at that moment in time their their mood might be changed they might have more inflammatory markers around in the, in their blood so a whole bunch of different factors broad lifestyle biopsychosocial factors that might influence it so I suppose one, one would be considering their, their communication. I think imaging findings are really important to communicate appropriately with patients. We know that there's not a strong relationship between imaging findings or certain imaging findings and pain. There appears to be some relationships. So Anne Smith did a great paper with the, the group out of Curtin that showed the more kind of multi-level changes that you have, the more likely you are to have pain, but not necessarily. So there's lots of ambiguity, uh, I suppose, around imaging. And then the final thing is probably conveying that there's complexity to pain. You know, it's not as straightforward as relating to tissue damage. And a couple of examples that I use quite frequently is to sort of debunk that almost pain and damage relationship. If you pull the, the, the thumbnail or the, the skin of your thumbnail off, it can be quite painful, but there's not really much damage there or a paper cut. It's quite painful. There's not much damage there. And probably all had experiences where you've had these random mystery bruises pop up. You have no re recollection of how they got there, but there's clearly tissue damage or internal bleeding happening there. And, and, and I'll use those examples with patients as well. Or a headache, you know, headaches can be incredibly painful. If we scanned your brain, is there any damage there? Probably not. Well, what's causing the headache? Well, maybe you haven't been sleeping well. Maybe, you know, you haven't been drinking enough water. Maybe your diet's a bit changed. Maybe you're highly stressed. Starting to provide those examples to highlight that, hey, you know, it's not just about damage and tissue damage, there's actually more to it, which is actually a good thing because it means there's more things we can target. I think that helps to, to de-threaten pain. And I think at the end of the day, that's a useful thing to do if we think that the pain's not caused by you know a malignancy or cancer or a fracture or some specific cause, right? I think that reminds me of um, Dr. Merv Travers, and we had him on episode 15. And he said, you know, if you step on a Lego, if you have a kid, anybody who's had a kid stepped on a Lego coming down the stairs knows that the pain is incredibly high. It's incredibly yeah. painful. It's, you know, it, you don't suffer actual damage from that. So that, that pain and damage mm. relationship is not a one-to-one. -one. I love those. Is there more to pain than damage? And I think that really summarizes nicely. It's almost like a ticket 
for people in pain out of chronic pain is like reframing and understanding, okay, there might be more to it than just my damaged back, shoulder, arm, whatever it is. One of the takeaways I had from this paper is that I, you know, I think it's important to make clear that we're not just saying that you can tell someone, hey, you know, your back is okay, that, you know, just relax, you'll be fine, it, you know, and then suddenly their pain goes away. That's, that's not how this works. It's a two-way street and your treatment interventions are addressing quantifiable deficits and, and, and limitations, but are also aimed towards appropriately challenging the patient's beliefs of what they believe their back is capable of doing. And the narrative that you're using reinforces your treatment interventions, just as your treatment interventions reinforce the narrative. And ideally, you'll be able to move to an unconscious unprotection, or I think it was non-conscious. Yeah, non-protection. Non-protection, yeah. thank you. Where you're not, as you said before, not really even thinking about your back anymore. Is that a fair way to look at this association? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really important point. I mean, it, it isn't as simple as just telling everyone to bend and breathe. If it was, then, you know, we wouldn't still be having this chronic pain epidemic or, or, or chronic low back pain or persistent low back pain epidemic, I suppose. And that's why they've got to have those experiences. I think one of the key things out of this paper was how powerful uh, the experiences of less pain with less protection were for those people. And, and again, this is kind of quite well supported by the literature, the common quantitative things that we see in people with low back pain. So they're more often more stiff, more protective and braced through their trunk and back muscles. They move less and they move slower. And as they get better in the literature, most of the time they move more, they move faster, they relax more. We can kind of see that. It doesn't actually matter what the intervention is. That's what we see. And you can think of your patients when they come in quite stiff and when, when they get better from a variety of, it could be whatever intervention, they usually move more freely. And that was quite well documented. A couple of key things there is, is the experience of less pain with less protective patterns. And that was part of a, a kind of a quite a guided behavioral experiment kind of process that the physiotherapist took them through. And these were highly trained physios in cognitive functional therapy. It's not just about telling people just to bend and breathe and move move normally. It's a, it's a mind-body relationship. It's a whole person experience. I think that's the why this was this paper is so cool. Like both of those factors, qualitative and quantitative, were addressed and totally related. It was just super cool to actually be able to put together. Just to add to that, so the experiences were crucial, but also the, edu the education participants valued is really, really important. So education from a trusted source in a way that made sense to them. So, and, and usually, again, you can't just tell people to, to move normally, you know, don't worry about their damaged back or their perceived damaged back, because that's a really strong emotion and belief for them. That's what they've been told from either, you know, someone that they trust in the healthcare system. It might've been a surgeon, it might've been a doctor, it might've been a physio, chiro, any other health professional. So that's, that's their identity. And you can't just remove someone's identity. Once they have that experience of, of less pain, then I usually always educate after the experience. So it's a, it's a hard thing to do to bite your tongue when people are spewing their beliefs out or, or talking about their beliefs. That's one of the best things that I've learned is just to, to bite my tongue. Let's just examine you. Let's play around with some experiments and see what happens. And then if, we, if there's been some powerful experiences, which there often is, then you back up with education and evidence and things like that. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people prefer to be told what to do or just tell me the evidence. That's where you've just got to individualize that to the patient. That is an incredibly important 
takeaway that is super valuable. Yeah. Like that, letting them experience that. That's, that's awesome. Education. Yeah. Yeah. People don't argue with their own data. They'll learn things and, and, and often they'll come to the conclusion as well. So after you can ask them the question. So if you're bending and, and moving now or you're slouching in your chair and it's feeling better, what does that tell you around what's, what you thought was causing your pain? They'll come to the conclusion themselves. You can do less and you can let the patient unwind that and just guide them, which is a really nice place to be. Anything else you want to share and when it comes to communicating with people with low back pain? Yeah, I think it's not easy and, you know, the societal narratives are probably not broadly not in our favour. The societal narratives around pain are that it's bad, that it's dangerous and, again, we're talking about non-specific pain here, so once we've ruled out specific causes – but the, the societal narratives around back pain are that, you know, it's your back's easy to injure and hard to heal, That which is a great paper out of Ben Darlow from, from um, New Zealand, that getting old is going to cause your pain, that you need to have a strong core. And all these narratives kind of perpetuate this idea that your back is fragile and you've got to be careful and pain means that there's something wrong. So, so it's a challenging space for us. So when patients are hearing all these different messages from, from society, some of the time we're actually counteracting those messages. And ideally that's through behavioral experiences and experiences that, that are felt for them, embodied experiences. But providing them with resources is, is a really useful thing. And, and I've even found, you know, we, we produce the um, Empowered Beyond Pain podcast and sending patients to, to that resource, which we interviewed a lot of patients with that had these same beliefs, a lot of patients, people that I treat will say, I felt like that was talking directly to me. I really related to that. I felt like that that patient was me. So kind of buffering people with more positive and more contemporary narratives around pain, I think is a really useful way to help not get drowning in, in the, the typical societal narratives around pain. And, and they're kind of everywhere. They're in gyms, they're healthcare practitioner offices and, and obviously society as well. For PTs that are listening and they're like, oh, this is great. I want more of this. Websites or groups that they could reach out to for more of these resources. Pain Ed or pain-ed.com is, is a good resource. Pain Health is a good resource as well. That's a WA government website. And, you know, a shameless plug, I suppose, for the uh, Empowered Beyond Pain podcast. There's, there's 20 episodes where we talk about the myths and facts of low back pain as well as osteoarthritis on that as well. There's a, a couple of really nice infographics that, that we've produced. And episode 11 to 20 is going into depth of the 10 facts of, or 10 myths and facts of, of low back pain, which is a really popular paper. We'll put that in the show notes. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. This was, this was fantastic. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. And as always, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.